0: Well, good morning again. Welcome one more time to Life Center North. Glad that you're here with us on this uh, Palm Sunday, which is a great celebration that uh, we'll talk about a little bit. But the celebration of the day that um, on the week leading up to both his uh, crucifixion and his resurrection, it's that Sunday where Jesus kind of made his way triumphantly into Jerusalem. And the people acknowledged that, uh, that this uh, Jesus, this prophet that was coming, was the king that God had sent and promised them. Uh, it's, a, it's a big deal. And it's kind of a high point in the life and ministry of Jesus. And have you noticed, I'm sure you have, that um, not just in the biblical pattern, but maybe even in the pattern of the lives that we live day in and day out, there's um, there's this pattern of having those moments that are just like the real high peak moments where everything's going good and great, and there's triumph, and there's victory, and there's winning, and things seem to be coming together. And then those are followed by some lower moments that you'd have to kind of characterize as kind of down in the valley, right, down in the depths, where maybe... There's some illness, maybe there's some problems or some difficulties or some reversals, and things are just painful and hard. And then hopefully on the other side of the peak and the valley is going to be another peak that you begin to ascend to on the other side, right? And it's actually one of the things that's great about being a church together is that when we come together like this, some of us are sitting here and our life is just riding high on the mountaintop and we're doing great, but we might be seated right next to someone whose life is down <laughs> deep in the valley. And we need each other, right? Those, are, those who are down in the valley, we need to see those who are doing well and to be encouraged and maybe do that. Those of us who are, who are um, up in the mountaintops doing great, we need to be there to help and assist those who are maybe struggling around us and to, to be reminded that God, that God might have some things in store for us that are even different than just the mountaintops and along the way. Well, in the life of Jesus, um, especially in this holy week, the week leading up to Easter, we see this pattern played out um, really powerfully. It starts with Palm Sunday, which is a high mark and then there's uh, the low mark of the crucifixion, and then it rises up to the peak on the other side of the resurrection. Um, but because today's Palm Sunday, I do want to mention at least what that's about. Um, because in a, lot of, there are, uh, in a lot of church traditions, Palm Sunday is a huge deal. It's like right up there with Easter almost. And every Palm Sunday, they'll have like a little, uh, like a pageant with the kids, and they'll come in with the palm leaves and Doing that, And if they have a live donkey, they'll find one and ride someone in pretending to be Jesus and stuff. It's really cool and a lot of fun. And that's, some churches will do that. And if you're part of that tradition, you know what I'm talking about. But there are a lot of other traditions that almost act like Palm Sunday is not even a thing. We just kind of go on and it, it's the next Sunday in line and, and no big deal. And so not sure which tradition you personally come from or what you're most familiar with. But if you're of the latter, you might be wondering, why is Palm Sunday even a deal at all? Why is it a thing? And it has a lot to do with the fact that in like the centuries leading up to that, um, the the Israelites, uh, they had a tough go of it. It had been several hundred years since the last prophet spoke the words of God to them. And since that time, God had been effectively silent. No prophets, no word of God, no prophecy, any of that. And so the last thing they heard 400 some years ago were, were these promises of a deliverer, of a messiah of one who would come along and set them free and lead them into God's promise and all of that, and they loved that idea. Who wouldn't, right? But what they encountered wasn't um, the deliverer, wasn't the king, wasn't the anointed Messiah. They, they actually encountered several hundred years of just being an oppressed and conquered uh, people, whether it was the Greeks or the Medes or the Persians or the Romans. They just kind of handed Israel down the line, and Israel was always ruled by somebody else. And then finally, they begin to hear uh, whisperings and rumors of, of possibly a, pro- a prophet in the land. And, and his name was Jesus. And there was even some, some talk about that he taught with a, a new kind of authority and a new kind of power. Some said that he could do miracles, that he could heal uh, the blind and the lame and that, so that they would see and that they would walk. Um, there, were, there were rumors, there were stories circulating around that he was just feeding anybody who had need of food. And even if all he had was a few fish and loaves of bread, he could feed thousands at a time with that. And that here he was coming to Jerusalem, and maybe just possibly when he arrives, this is it. And so as, as uh, Jesus makes his way towards Jerusalem, the, uh, the rumors and the whispers, they get louder, and they become cheers. And, and pretty soon there's crowds cheering and One by one, individuals become a crowd who are beginning to acknowledge and understand this is it. This is not just a guy. This is a guy who fulfills God's promises. This is not just an interesting teacher. He is the very unique savior of God who will lead us into the fulfillment of God's promises. And for 400 years, my ancestors have been waiting for this. And now I get a front row seat to the fulfillment of God's promises. It's happening, and it's happening here. They're very excited. It was a party. If you you got to be in Seattle celebrating the Super Bowl at the parade that they had there, wall-to-wall people couldn't get anywhere, just crazy. This blew that away by miles. Just a crazy celebration. And so we remember that. We remember Christ coming triumphantly triumphantly into Jerusalem and the people recognizing that this is the promised Messiah of God. But then in keeping with the pattern, following this high point of, of a Palm Sunday reception where they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here is our Savior. Here is our Messiah. There's the peak of that reception, but we know in just a few days that's going to dip down into the valley. By Friday, they're shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And he's put to death on the cross. And then on the other side of that, uh, given given three days, is the triumph of the resurrection as well. So as a week goes, it's a pretty power-filled week. There is an awful lot going on. And uh, what we learn from the pattern is that we experience God, the way, and we encounter God differently in the peaks than we do in the valleys. Have you noticed that? That the way that you encounter and interact with God on the peaks is different than down in the valleys. See, it's, it's pretty easy to find and to identify what God is doing when, you, when your life's at a mountaintop, when it's at a peak, when you're winning, where there's triumph. You see God in that, and hopefully we thank Him for that. But it's more difficult to discern where God might be at work down in the valleys. In terms of Holy Week, it's easy to find God on Palm Sunday, and it's very easy to find God at work on Easter Sunday at the Resurrection. It's a lot harder work to see where is God active in the Good Friday and in the crucifixion. And that's why, very often, Good Friday kind of gets skipped over and it gets overlooked a little bit, because we, let's face it, we love to win, right? We love to celebrate, we love to cheer, and we hate to lose, we love celebrating God's triumphs. Finding and trusting God in our suffering, that's harder work. That's a little more difficult to do. See, death um, is inherently, it's a very uncomfortable subject. And Christ's death in particular, it was brutal and it was very troubling. And so often Good Friday and the events of the death of Christ uh, get overlooked in favor of the triumph of the resurrection or the triumph of his entry on Palm Sunday. This Easter as a church, we want to walk through the rhythms of the Holy Week together maybe better than we've done before. Uh, And so we've included kind of in the things that are going on the Good Friday service that that Cooper alluded to. Can I just invite you to come be a part of that on Friday evening, to come spend an hour here and focus with us on the impact and on the power and on the depth of the significance of what was taking place in the cross. See, everything in us wants to look past the cross and hurry, hurry up and get to the resurrection so we can celebrate. But something amazing happens when we slow down and, and sometimes even against our instincts, we force our gaze back to the cross, back to the valley, back to the low point, where maybe against what's comfortable, we force ourselves to take a close look at the suffering and the agony and the pain and the price Uh, that Christ paid. But when we will do that, when we'll fight off our instincts and just slow down a moment and, and be in that moment where Christ died, something incredible happens. There's a depth of identification. There's an understanding of what it is to be there at the valley of the shadow of death. And what we invest in getting a clearer understanding of the cross at the valley just gives us later on all the more reason to celebrate the triumph of the resurrection that comes. It's interesting. The greater our clarity on the experience of Christ's death, the greater the caliber of our celebration of the resurrection. And so maybe you, like many, are saying, this is a year I would love to celebrate Easter in a way that really connects and is really celebratory and, and connects at a deeper level. Can I suggest that one of the ways you might be able to do that would become spend a quiet, intimate hour here at the foot of the cross, uh, reflecting on its meaning and on its power and celebrating communion together and then head on to the weekend. I I can almost promise you your celebration of the resurrection will be more powerful than ever. But I digress because this morning uh, we're in a series. We're actually finishing up our series called Three Crosses. Um, Mike, a couple of weeks ago, talked about the cross of Christ and its power. Uh, Laurel, last week, talked about the crosses that we're called to carry and how we're called to carry them. And this morning, we're talking about the cross of hope. And that's a little bit odd, right? Because the cross is an instrument of death and suffering. And death and suffering aren't what we most frequently associate with hope in any way, but maybe we should. And maybe this morning, by taking a closer look at Jesus and, uh, and his journey to the cross, we can learn a little something about discovering the activity of God uh, in the valleys of the cross. And maybe we can learn a little something about hope and, and the way that the hope is inherent not just in the cross of Christ but the way that hope is inherent in the kind of daily deaths that you and I are called to live when we're walking through the valleys between the peaks. Because what Christ experienced on the cross and what we experience in the valley actually produces hope in some ways that we might not expect. And the first one is this. The cross produces hope of God's purpose. The cross produces hope with regard to god's purpose now jesus was talking to his disciples and this is on the night before he died and he, and he tells them i'm leaving you i'm getting ready to go and to die he says my children i'll only be with you a little longer and you'll look for me and just as i told the jews and so i tell you now where i'm going you can't come he gives them this heads up that hey in the next few hours something horrible is going to happen and i'm going to be gone i'm going to the cross and this upsets them because they don't fully understand They're not sure what purpose Jesus' death will serve. Some of them may have looked back. You know, earlier in Jesus' ministry, there came this moment where uh, Peter came to the conclusion that Jesus was the Son of God. And at that point, Jesus' whole focus turned, and he made it real clear what the rest of his life was about. He told Peter, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and that he must suffer many things at the hand of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And on the third day, be raised to life. And, and Peter didn't like this. He was okay with Jesus being the Son of God, but now Jesus is talking about going to Jerusalem for the express purpose of dying. What purpose does that serve? And so Peter takes Jesus aside, which is never generally a good idea, takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him and says, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus, understanding that Peter's motives were human, And that he didn't have a God ordained perspective, says to to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. See, Peter felt that Jesus going to Jerusalem to die didn't serve any decent purpose, but Jesus saw it differently. And he indicates that God has some divine things in mind that Peter, because he has a merely human perspective, is uh, incapable of understanding. And so now, back on the night before going to the cross, Jesus provides a little greater clarity, a little more insight into the purpose and into the reason that he's going to the cross when he tells the disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. And if that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and I will take you to be with me that you may always be where I am. See, Jesus makes it clear that his death, his leaving of the disciples for the cross was expressly for the purpose of going and preparing a place for for them that would be their eternal home and to actually make a way for them to be able to get there themselves. You see, despite the fact that Peter couldn't see it, God had a very specific and a very divine purpose for the cross upon which Jesus died. And for you and for me, this should provide a lot of hope in the midst of whatever suffering we're going through, whatever deep waters we're crossing, whatever valley we find ourselves in the midst of, despite the fact that we may not see it, God has a very specific and a very divine purpose for the crosses that we carry and for the burdens that we bear. I want to stop and let that maybe sink in just a little bit. Maybe you are finding yourself in a valley season right now and a dark time and a difficult time. And maybe you've felt or even maybe heard the voice of the enemy rattling around in the back of your head or maybe even coming at you in the very human voices of people around you telling you that God's not at work here. God's absent. God doesn't care. He's not involved. He has no plans for you. He's abandoned you. And that's why you find yourself in the valley. Can I just say that if we understand Jesus' trip to the cross, that one of the things that becomes clear is that whenever we find ourselves at the low point, We can look and say, there is purpose here. I may not be able to see it, and I may not be able to discern it, but I can state by faith that I believe that it's there. And and if that's true, boy, doesn't that change the way we will pray about the circumstances we find ourselves in? I mean, I know how I pray when I'm down in the valley. God, help me. God, take me out of the valley. Raise me up. Lift me up. God, save me. Rescue me. Help. That's my prayer. Help me leave this place I dislike. But if I understand that God has a very specific purpose for putting me in this place that I dislike and for allowing me to be there for a while, if I believe that God has a purpose in that, then my prayers are going to change. They're going to somehow shift around and and come to that point where I can say, God, I don't like it here. But would you show me what your purpose is? Clearly, you've brought me here for something, and I'm blind to it now. God, will you help me see? Will, Will you reveal your plans? Will you reveal your purposes? And maybe that's you. Maybe it's time this weekend even to begin changing the nature of the prayers you're praying, to say, God, show me your purpose, rather than, God, show me how to get out of this situation. So the cross, it produces the hope of God's purpose. Every time we endure the cross, endure the valley, we can can rejoice in the hope that God has a purpose. But the cross also produces hope of God's presence. It's not just about that God has some plan for us as we walk through. It's that God will be with us in the moments of our suffering. Jesus went on to talk to his disciples. He said, but very truly, I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, see, this is kind of interesting. In the Old Testament, which was before Jesus, um, the Holy Spirit would occasionally... uh, come down and, and visit an individual, like a specific prophet, a Samuel, an Isaiah, uh, an Elijah, an Elisha. And, and God's Holy Spirit would be at one, with one person at a time. And the best you could do was maybe, if you weren't that person, was just to look on and kind of enjoy that, right? And, and then came Jesus, God himself in human flesh right there, and I can see him. But God's ultimate plan was not just to occasionally visit one human at a time, or simply to be incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ, but God had a deeper plan for being close to the people who he loved and created, and that was for his very Holy Spirit to indwell those, to live within each one who called on his name, so that the Holy Spirit of God isn't something out there on somebody else, isn't a person that I look to as my example, but the Holy Spirit of God actually dwells within me and begins transforming me and changing me and making me more Christ-like from the inside out. That's being close to God. When God lives within you, you have an overwhelming sense of his presence with you, right? But what Jesus understood and what he shared with the disciples was this. If I don't go to the cross, if I don't go through the suffering, if I don't leave you, we'll never get to the place where the Holy Spirit gets sent to live inside you. In this moment, Jesus says, it feels like I'm leaving you, and it feels like I'm abandoning you. It feels like I am going to leave you alone. You feel like you're being isolated by the pain and the struggle and the death and the burden of the cross. You feel alone. But even in that aloneness is the hope of God's presence, which is to come, the Holy Spirit. So in those places where we are not on the peaks, when we're down in the valley and we feel absolutely isolated and we can't find God at all, we have this promise that even in the going, in the, in, at, the, at the bottom of the darkest valley of all, the cross, it is fraught with a sense of God's plan to bring his presence to his people. That should be encouraging for those of us who are walking through that valley ourselves say, God, it's not just that you have a plan and a purpose for this, it's that you're with me in this for sure. Oddly enough, it's in the midst of the death and in the midst of suffering and loss that we can become most keenly aware of God's presence with us, right? The psalmist wrote in a, in a verse that's really familiar, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. God is not absent in the places of our suffering god is very present he is with us even in the valley of the shadow of death so when jesus cried out from the cross when he said my god my god why have you forsaken me he was taking upon himself a separation from the presence of god the father that he had never experienced and he did so did so so that you and i would never have to experience it for ourselves On the cross, Jesus was willingly stepping away from God's presence so that you and I might always have access to it. So we're never truly alone in our suffering because not only is God with us because the Spirit dwells within us, but the message of the cross is also this, that Jesus himself suffers with us, that he understands what it is to suffer and to know pain and to die. And as much as his death was on our behalf on the cross, he is continually bound to our suffering and our sorrows. So back again to our own experience and by way of application, when we find ourselves in the valley, which is is all too frequent, right? We find ourselves there, and we're used to praying, God, help me out. But what if in addition to praying, God, will you show me what you're doing, show me your purposes? What if we said, God, would you reveal to me your presence? God, would you show me where you are in this? Would you lead me to the places where I can feel your love and your grace and your care um, most powerfully, even in the midst of the suffering, even in the midst of the valley? The cross, it produces uh, the hope of God's purpose and the hope of his presence, both of those for sure, but it also produces the hope of God's promise. You see, inherent in the events of the cross is the promise of the resurrection, the promise of eternal life. Jesus had said it really clearly. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have what? Eternal life. And elsewhere, John had said to one of his followers, Jesus, uh, John writes that Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And I will confess that like the idea of living even though they die and eternal life, um, those sound like very religious words to me that don't always um, come across as real practical and and very genuine and real. Um, And a lot of people really struggle with this, asking, is this what Christians really believe? That one day, if Christ doesn't return, I'm going to live out all of my days and I'll come and I'll take my last breath and that I will die and that my body will be laid to rest in whatever fashion uh, that happens, but that at some point in the future, Christ will return and something amazing will happen to that body of mind that's been laid to rest. That God will speak the word, and that which is dead will be literally raised up to live again. And not just to live again in like we live here and now, but to live again eternally and without fail. That's, it's an astounding claim, right? When you stop and think about it, that I will die and then I will be raised up to eternal life. That's a big deal. It's a big claim. It was one of the qu- questions... That the church in Corinth had, so after Jesus had uh, lived and ministered and died, and he was raised from the dead, and after he had uh, ascended up to heaven, you know, the Apostle Paul, some 30, 40, 50 years later, was doing his missionary work. He founded a church in the city of Corinth, and uh, he kept in correspondence with them. They wrote back and forth, and they had a question. They wondered um, about the resurrection. Now, they believed that Jesus had been raised from the dead. They'd talked to eyewitnesses of the fact. They'd heard all the testimony. They believed that Jesus had been raised from the dead. They were just a little unclear unclear about the implications for themselves. They wondered if being raised up from death into an eternal and everlasting life was just for Jesus or whether those who uh, followed him kind of could get in on the deal as well. And so they asked Paul, what's the deal with the resurrection? Do we really get to... uh, Was that Jesus only that got to be raised from the dead, or do we get to be included? And so Paul, the next time he wrote, included an answer to that question, and that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, And he's he's unmistakably clear about uh, what he taught, about where resurrection is concerned, the promise of being raised to eternal life. He says, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the perishable. By flesh and blood, he's talking about this, the skin and the bones, the bodies that we have, these things that over enough time will fade and decay and will die, right? And and he says, this flesh and blood, this decaying part of ourselves, it's not ready to take on eternity yet. He says, listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. That is, um, some people will still be alive when Christ returns and when the resurrection happens, Many others will have died prior to that. We won't all sleep, but all will be changed. And in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For the perishable, that is flesh and bone and skin and muscle and fat and whatever all else is included, the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and when the mortal has been clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, that death has been swallowed up in victory. That's a powerful, unmistakable, unapologetic claim. To follow Jesus is, among other things, to recognize that inherent in the darkness and the pain of the cross is the hope of the promise of resurrection and it brings up right the obvious question well what's that gonna be like right I mean I can understand um, you know there are a few a few different accounts in the Bible of people who died and then got raised back up to dead Lazarus was one of them there's a, a, a widow's son and a couple others right I can understand that they died and Jesus made them alive again right they, they were alive again in just the same way that they had been before They were the same person. They lived. They breed. They carried on their life. Eventually, they got old or ill, and then they died for real. and And finally, for them, right? That wasn't a resurrection. That was a resuscitation. They'd been dead for a while. They were resuscitated, and then they kept living for a long time. Okay, I understand what that's like. But when you talk about resurrection, you're talking about a much bigger change than that. You're talking about something that that is not designed to last forever. Something that gets sick, ill, decays, and dies and it changes and becomes something that will last eternally and forever. What will that resurrection body look like? What will it be like? What will it feel like? What will it be able to do? What won't it be able to do? Will it be anything like my current body? How will it be different? These are all kinds of questions, and I have heard people talk at length, and I've read books, even done a couple of uh, seminars and, uh, and conferences about that, uh, about the new biology and the new physics of eternity. And while some of that was very interesting, It was not very biblical. It was very speculative. It was a lot of what if, and there is a lot of what if. But let's be clear. When it comes to understanding what eternal life is going to be like and what what our resurrection bodies are going to be like, we should look first and only to the Bible. And our claims, which everyone's we make, shouldn't extend beyond what the Bible claims and supports. So what does the Bible say about what our resurrection bodies will be like, about what the experience of being made alive eternally will be like? The first clue we get is this, as Paul is writing to the Corinthians. He says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So, in the same way that Christ was raised from the dead uh, on Easter morning, right, he says that's the first fruits. What he experienced then is the first example of what all of us are eventually going to experience, those of us who believe in Christ. It suggests that our experience of the resurrection will be very similar to what Jesus experienced. Okay, so what do we know about what Jesus experienced, right? Well, we do know this. We know that that his body before the resurrection and his body after the resurrection were, were at least kind of similar, right? Because he showed himself to the disciples and said, look, it's me. And when they doubted, he said, no, look, it is me. I got the same holes in my hands. I got the hole in my side from where the spear was plunged in while I hung on the cross. The, the things that happened to my body in this life are somehow still reflected a little bit in, in Jesus' resurrection body afterwards. So in some ways, he was still recognizable. There was continuity from the, body, from the, uh, from the physical body before and the resurrection body afterwards. But then there, were, there are also some things we see that are really different, right? Um, in some ways, it seems like that for whatever reasons, and this is not a conference, a seminar, a book that I'm going to just speculate, but let me just observe that the laws of physics as we know them in this life didn't really consistently apply to Jesus' body after he was resurrected. So the disciples are gathered in a room and the doors are locked and the windows are shut because they're terrified about the, the, people, the rulers and the Pharisees and folks that are out there. And they're locked in a room, locked up tight, Jesus isn't with them, they're doing their thing and then they look up and Jesus is in the room with them without the door having been opened, without the windows being open, without anything crawling through. The, the doors and the walls and the physical material that formed that room somehow didn't stop his resurrection body from getting inside. Ask me how that works, I'm going to tell you I have no idea. I'm just telling you that's what Scripture seems to indicate. Here's something else that happens with Jesus' physical appearance after the resurrection. Do you remember there's a couple disciples, they're walking along the road to Emmaus, and they're trying to figure out what this whole cross thing and Jesus raising from the dead and they're talking about it and they're processing and this guy just comes up and joins them and starts talking with them and teaching them from the Old Testament all that God had promised and they walk all the way in and they don't recognize Jesus and then in a conversation once they get there he says the word and it's like the scales drop from their eyes and it's like oh now we do recognize Jesus now what's happening there I don't know but they what, what their eyes saw where the resurrected Jesus was concerned, was different than the way they beheld uh, just a Jesus in the regular life. So will we be recognizable to one another on the other side in heaven, in eternity? Yeah, we will. It seems to be. But will there be differences? Yes. Do we know what all those differences are? No. And that's a good thing because we've got all of eternity to figure it out. If we could fit it into this time now, it'd be real boring rest of eternity, right? We've got some learning to do. That's all good. Paul goes on to provide an image that kind of helps us a little bit. He talks about taking a seed and planting it in the ground and how how what you put in the ground is different than what emerges coming up. He says, some skeptic is sure to ask, hey, show me how the resurrection works. Give me a diagram or draw me a picture. What does this resurrection body look like anyway? If you look at this question closely, he says, you realize how absurd it is. There are no diagrams for this sort of thing. We do have a parallel experience in gardening. You plant a dead seed. Soon, there is a flourishing plant. There's no visual likeness between seed and plant. You could never guess what a tomato would look like by looking at a tomato seed. What we plant in the soil and what grows out of it don't look anything alike. The dead body that we bury in the ground and the resurrection body that comes from it will be dramatically different. I, for one, am grateful about that fact. I like that kind of promise. So when we're resurrected, the perishable, the material, the physical fleshly part of us that is our body, it's going to undergo an extraordinary change. We're not just going to be like wispy, non-material spirits or ghosts, and I say that because that's not what happened to Jesus. That's not what he became. We will still be recognizably ourselves, um, and we will be able to recognize one another. We'll have physicality of some kind, just like Jesus did after the resurrection, but like Jesus, it'll be a new kind of body that's equipped and prepared to last forever, that's no breakdowns, no illnesses, no conditions, no syndromes, no Advil needed. Life's getting better just to think about it. How else can we describe what that might be like? Paul went on. He said, This image of planting a dead seed and raising a live plant is a mere sketch at best. But perhaps it will help in approaching the mystery of the resurrection body. You know, if, you, if you're a circler in your Bible and you circle the word mystery, that's not a bad idea because Paul's describing it, but even in describing it, he says, it's not exactly clear, and that's okay. He says, it will uh, it will help in approaching the mystery of the resurrection body, but only if you keep in mind that when we're raised, we're raised for good and alive forever. The corpse that's planted is no beauty. Just, anyone keeping track? I want that on my tombstone. tombstone. The corpse that's planted is no beauty. But when it's raised it is glorious. Put in the ground weak, it comes up powerful. So, you know, I mean, we can talk about the phys- our physical status, that for many of us, we feel like maybe we're no beauty, that our bodies are broken. But God says, I'm going to raise that up to something glorious. We may feel that we are weak physically, but God says it's going to be raised up powerful. Okay? The hope for that Please understand, the hope for that is bound up with Christ's experience on the cross. It's the cross that allows that to be a reality. Raised up in glory. The seed that's sown is natural. The seed that's grown is supernatural. Same seed, same body, but what a difference from when it goes down into physical mortality to when it is raised up in spiritual immortality. The cross provides hope. The cross, the symbol of death and suffering and shame, it provides hope because it connects to God's purpose. It provides hope because it connects us to God's presence that he's here with us. And it provides hope because it connects us to God's promise of resurrection. So the obvious question is, well, how do I get in on that, right? How do I sign up? Where do I put my name on the line? And, and it's as simple as this. We, we referred to two verses already. Um, Jesus said, uh, on the resurrection and the life, he who believes in me, right, though he were dead, yet shall he live. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shouldn't perish but should have everlasting life. It's not something we earn, It's something that we choose to believe, and then out of that belief comes a life of following Jesus and allowing that belief to live itself out. Let's pray, shall we? God, we are um, eager, as always, to celebrate triumph and victory and overcoming. And God, that leads us to look with real joy towards uh, Easter and the celebration that awaits us for that. God, we're so happy about that. But God, sometimes between here and there, is a valley, and sometimes in the valley there's a, there's a cross to bear and a cross to endure. God, I want to I I pray a, a real specific prayer for those this morning in this place, those who find themselves in that valley, however deep. And God, I want to pray, would you reveal your purposes for this time in the valley? Would you, would you just show us who are suffering, what it is that you're working in us? And God, while you're doing that, would you give us an overwhelming sense of your presence? God, make it clear to us in the deepest places of our soul how near you are. And God, would you, um, as, as the God who is a faithful promise keeper, would you continue to keep in front of us the promise of our ultimate redemption? The promise of a life of resurrection, a life that we can't entirely understand and, uh, and that we can't entirely map out. But God, we're ready for it. We're ready to embrace it and to experience it. God, we belong to you. and pray that you would continue to walk, walk with us faithfully on the mountaintop, in the valley, or on the next mountaintop along the way in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.